You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You're actually tuned into our citation classics, the very first one on sports, which I'm actually going into sports, so shout out to sports. Uh, Our very first citation classics on sports. I'm really looking forward to this. We have a cool team of people, and this will be our first sports citation classics episode and we hope to do many more in the future but uh let me just go ahead and introduce some of the people that are that are a part of this squad uh, that will talk some sports and today we'll talk a little about uh, acl reconstructions but uh the main the main man the person in charge here is uh dr tucker peabody pg1 pgy1 resident at ohio health uh doctor hospital we also have dr Ahab nizal a pgy2 uh, resident at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, we have Tyler Thorne, who is a fourth year student at the John A. Burns School of Medicine. And then we also have Tariq Saeed, who is actually in the combined bachelor's MD program in Missouri, uh, currently in his fifth out of sixth year. So hopefully today we get into some um, some good ACL, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and let uh, Dr. Tucker Peabody here. Tucker, I'll let you go ahead and take the reins and, and, and let us talk some more ACLs, more citation classics, and, and we'll go from there. All right. Good deal. First off, thanks for having me. Uh, it's very fortunate to be a part of this. And, you know, I've, like I told you before, I've been listening to you guys for, you know, well over a year now when I was a third, fourth year medical student. So it's good to be on, on the other side of things. But uh, yeah, let's get started. So the topic we're starting off in our sports section is uh, specifically ACL reconstruction. And there's a lot of uh, literature out there regarding uh, ACL reconstruction, different types of graphs, techniques. I thought it was a very good uh, topic to start off with. So we got about five papers here that we'll talk about regarding ACL reconstruction. And uh, we're going to start it off with this uh, pr- perspective randomized trial comparing a uh, single bundle versus double bundle. And uh, Ehab, why don't you go ahead and take over? Awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah, just to echo, um, thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'll be talking about this study, which is a perspective randomized clinical evaluation Uh, looking at conventional single bundle, anatomic single bundle, and anatomic double bundle, ACL reconstruction. Um, You know, I think it's fitting that I'm talking about this since uh, the PI on this paper was Dr. Fu. As you all know, I mean, Dr. Fu is a powerhouse in the sports medicine department for at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as internationally for decades. Um, So to be able to uh, talk about this article and, uh, you know, in the function of uh, being one of his students, I really did see him as a mentor. It's uh, I really do appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, Dr. Um, Fu was great. Yeah. Um, so just as a background, so looking at conventional or a transtibial ACL reconstruction. So we know that this restores anterior tibial translation, um, but there's a question of whether it really restores rotatory stability. Um, we learn in medical school, you know, the the uh, function of the ACL is uh, anterior-posterior stability, especially with the anterior drawer that we all learn about. But it's not really until we get into residency that we start talking about the rotatory stability, uh, especially with the pivot shift. So um, previous biomechanical studies have showed the uh, anatomic double bundle ACL reconstruction restores knee stability closer to normal than just a conventional or transtibial single bundle ACL reconstruction. The issue with that, though, is that there's a lot of conflicting literature and uh, it really stems from um, really a lack of specifying whether uh, reconstruction techniques are transtibial or anatomic in papers. Um, we know that failing to really identify these techniques uh, introduces confounding results, um, which not only 
influences outcomes, but more also uh, influences range of motion, knee kinematics, potential threats to the graft, um, and eventually graft failure. So I'd, on the figure on the right, I just kind of pulled from another paper that you can see just the differences between both um, the single bundle and the double bundle. So the purpose of this paper was to compare the results of three different techniques of ACL reconstruction. Um, it was to determine if the double bundle ACL reconstruction is needed to restore ro uh, rotational stability, or if you could just get away with uh, an anatomic placement of a single bundle ACL reconstruction uh, to yield similar results. Um, the hypothesis, there were two, two of them. Anatomic single bundle ACL reconstruction is superior to conventional single bundle ACL reconstruction and anatomic double bundle ACL reconstruction uh, is superior to both conventional and anatomic single bundle ACL reconstruction. In terms of the method, so uh, this was a prospective randomized clinical study. So level one, there were three groups, uh, the conventional single bundle, uh, the anatomic single bundle, and the anatomic double bundle. Um, and in terms of inclusion criteria, they were really looking at ACL ruptures in active patients, and then also looking for patients with closed growth plates. Uh, exclusion criteria, so really just dealing with isolated injuries, no multi-ligamentous injuries here. Um, excluded patients who had uh, bad osteoarthritis of the knee, any sort of previous metastectomy, um, and then they wanted to be able to compare to the contralateral side, so uh, no contralateral ACL deficient knees, and then they wanted complete ruptures. In terms of measured outcomes, it looked at anterior tibial translation with the KT-1000 machine. They did a side-side difference to the contralateral side. They did a pivot shift um, to test the rotational stability, specifically in internal rotation and valgus. They looked at knee range of motion. And in terms of patient report outcomes, they did the license score and then they did a subjective and objective IKDCs. In terms of results, so uh, there are a lot of charts here, but we'll kind of go over just the main results here. So in comparing conventional single bundle and anatomic single bundle. In terms of AP and rotational stability, they found that the anatomic single bundle was superior to the conventional single bundle, but there was no difference in the lysome or the subjective IKDC scores. In terms of conventional single bundle and uh, comparing that to the anatomic double bundle, um, the anatomic double, double bundle is superior to the conventional single bundle for all measured outcomes, except for a subjective IKDC score. And then looking at the anatomic single bundle versus the anatomic double bundle, the double bundle was superior to the single bundle for AP, rotational stability, and knee range of motion, but there were no differences between groups for lysome score or subjective or objective IKDCs. So overall, the anatomic double bundle was found to be superior to both the conventional single bundle and the anatomic single bundle. Um, and also the anatomic single bundle was found to be superior to conventional single bundle. So kind of the most important thing here is it really implies the most important factor of ACL reconstruction, which is anatomic uh, reconstruction. So uh, in the early 2000s, looking at single bundle and double bundle, there was really a lot of hype about should we be doing single bundle or double bundle for each patient? Like, should we actually try to truly replicate the two bundles? And ultimately it kind of fizzled out just from a biomechanics and an outcome standpoint. Um, the uh, training that was required to do a double bundle as well as the increased operative time didn't really measure up to just doing a single bundle. However, this study really does show the importance of an anatomic reconstruction. So looking at your MRI and understanding 
where your tibial insertion point is, where your femoral insertion point is, and trying to recreate that as well as possible. Uh, in terms of limitations to the study though, so again, there was no individualization of surgery. So um, we weren't doing a select graft type or size. Uh, we weren't looking at like really insertional site morphology. Um, so you couldn't really individualize that uh, due to randomization of the study, which kind of explains why that limitation exists. Um, in terms of future studies though, um, repeat comparisons looking at more individu individualization in order to more accurately perform tunnel placement, again, to really make the procedure more anatomic. And I think the goal here is how anatomic can you make this? Like how individualized to each patient can you make this ACL reconstruction? And it's something that I know personally, Dr. Van Eck and Dr. Fu, especially Dr. Fu really stressed. And it's something that we're really trying to get to in terms of ACL reconstruction, especially at the University of Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think it was a good paper. And, you know, one of those points that you uh, that you touched on is that, you know, outcomes were pretty much the same. But again, one of the big things is like, you know, the double, double bundle, you have increased operative time. Um, there's a different level of technical skill needed for that, too. But um, yeah, yeah, I think that was, that was great. All right. Yeah, those are really good paper. Um, I'm, you know, interested in sports and you know, I'm only a PGY1 and I, I get to see, you know, any double bundle reconstructive uh, procedures. Yeah, I feel like I haven't really heard it discussed much. Uh, so it'd be interesting to like hear what you guys, have, if you've seen any and, you know, pros and cons. Yeah, I haven't seen any in my residency. All, they're all been single bundle. I don't. Yeah. What about you? You've seen some double bundles over there? No, you know, it's kind of fallen to the wayside. Um, we do it in the lab. So I'm in the research year actually at UPMC, the six year program. So I work in the sports lab. So sometimes we do still do the double bundle um, just for like a few side projects that are going on. But, you know, I've never seen it clinically done. And, and the reason why is I really do think that people have kind of subscribed to the idea that they would rather really understand the insertion site and, and go for as anatomic as possible with a single bundle rather than, um, you know, cutting your graft or, or having to prepare your graft differently. Um, it just, I think, isn't worth the extra time for the outcomes, um, as well as uh, the increased operative time. So I haven't seen any personally. Awesome. Yeah, okay. All right, well, let's keep this trend going. We'll get, continue with the next paper uh, presented by Tyler Thorne, talking about um, risk of secondary injuries in these younger athletes after they have an ACL reconstruction. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, I love the show. So excited to contribute. So this is a systematic review where they looked at the risk of secondary injury in younger athletes after ACL ligament um, reconstruction. Just moving on to the background. Um, you know, ACL is the most commonly injured ligament in the knee. And there's roughly 100,000 to 200,000 ACL reconstructions a year. Um, but following ACL reconstruction, injury to the ipsilateral or contralateral ACL is a disastrous but known outcome. And across the literature, graft failure rates range from 3% to 25%. And there are many known factors that are associated with good outcomes after ACL reconstruction, such as surgical technique, graft choice, uh, rehabilitation and patient education. But despite all of this and the high occurrence rates, risk factors for graft failure and contralateral ACL rupture are not really clear. 
So the purpose of this uh, meta-analysis was to assess the risk factors of age and activity level after ACL reconstruction in secondary ACL injury. And they hypothesized that young age and return to sport would increase secondary ACL injury risk. Moving on to the methods, they did this meta-analysis um, through searches of PubMed and EBSCOhost. They have a little flow chart there that shows how they decided on their uh, studies. And they searched terms related to the field, such as ACL, uh, reconstruction, return to sport, age, risk factors. Um, and they included level of evidence range from two to four. There was no level one, as there's been no randomized controlled trials. And the factors that they looked at were a number of patients, demographic outcome measures of surgery or injury of ACL, re-injury rates for the ipsilateral side, contralateral side, and total re-injury rates. So moving on to results, um, through the meta-analysis, they found that ipsilateral re-injury rate was 7% and a contralateral injury rate of 8%. Although from the individual studies, there was a large range from about 4.7% to 20.5%. And then collectively, the total secondary ACL injury rate was 15%. Patients under the age of 25 had a secondary ACL injury rate of 21%, and that's including both ipsilateral and contralateral. Secondary ACL injury rate for athletes returning to sport was 20%. And then combining those two risk factors, secondary ACL injury rate for athletes younger than 25 years old who returned to sport was 23%. Thus, younger age and returning to support, uh, excuse me, returning to sport increased the percentage of secondary injury from 15% in the general population to 23%. So the big takeaways and conclusions from this is that younger aged athletes under the age of 25 who returned to sport are associated with a higher risk of secondary ACL injury. And from this study, they just showed that nearly one in four athletes returning to play will have a secondary ACL injury. And then those athletes returning to sport are at actually 30 to 40 times greater risk of ACL re-injury compared to their uninjured counterparts. And also an interesting um, fact of this is that contralateral limb injury exceeded rates of ipsilateral graft rupture after the primary ACL surgery. And this held regardless of controlling for age or activity level. The limitations of this study uh, include inadequate reporting of secondary ACL injuries. So several studies only reported ACL revision surgery. So this might've missed patients and athletes who had injury but did not undergo a secondary procedure, uh, the lack of standardized information about patient follow-ups, rehab status, graft size type, um, and surgical technique. So there's some future uh, directions from this work. So despite um, all of the rehab protocols we have, there is still significant risk of re-injury. So further investigation is needed to evaluate rehab protocols and their guidelines. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy this paper. And I think it, it's something that, you know, we needed to discuss more about, especially with, you know, um, these younger athletes and, you know, their increased risk of injury, especially, you know, any athlete can attest to, you know, wanting to get back onto the field or the court as early as possible. 
um, after an injury. And, you know, it's tough to discern whether or not, you know, these, these uh, athletes, regardless of what level they are, you know, their rehab protocols, because that can be just as important as the surgery itself. And if, you know, the surgery can go great and you can have an excellent graft take, but if you're rushing your rehab, um, you know, you're kind of putting yourself at risk for an injury like this paper showed. So I think, yeah, further research for, you know, standardized like therapy protocols and time of these rehab um, therapies, you know, would be pretty beneficial. I also think this is an important paper um, because, you know, as we kind of move into the future with ACL reconstruction, a lot of, um, you know, sports surgeons or people doing these procedures are guaranteeing quicker return times, like really trying to push the envelope in terms of how quick can I get you back on the field? And I think that, you know, for the patients and especially those who want to be back as quickly as possible, that's a really attractive option. Um, and it's, it's potentially easy to talk to parents and, and children and say, Hey, I can get you back in six months. I can get you back in seven months. Um, but I mean, these, this data is just so important to show that, you know, a people who are going back super quickly are going to be at risk without a good therapy protocol. And B these younger age kids, um, are, are at an even higher risk. So it really does bring to light an important point. So I'm glad we talked about it. Yeah. Good article. Yeah. yeah one more quick thing, uh, you know, uh, just kind of going over ipsilateral versus contralateral injuries. I think it, you know, it needs to, you know, be discussed, especially with these re protocols, you know, are they taking into account the contralateral limb? Because obviously there's going to be different loading, different biomechanics, because you're compensating for so many months, you know, what long-term effects does that have? So, I mean, I don't know the specific rehab protocols, but it'd be curious to see, you know, what they do for the, the, the healthy limb. Yeah. And then there's a lot that goes in, um, in the ACLs and even like preventing, um, preventing ACL injuries from happening and neuromuscular training. I mean, there's, there's a lot of research in, in the ACL in general and trying to prevent injuries versus again, having a secondary injury after you have an ACL injury. But yeah, I think, again, I think it's a pretty good paper here. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's keep it going. All right. Yeah. So this is, um, this is a meta-analysis uh, titled outcomes of single bundle versus double bundle reconstruction of the ACL. And this is a, a study, um, again, a meta-analysis that was done out of the Tau uh, Orthopedic Institute in New Mexico and um, some Smith and Nephew stuff in, in, in uh, Massachusetts. So just to give a little bit of background, I mean, yeah, I've kind of described it a little bit earlier, but again, we have our two bundles of our ACL. You have the anterior medial and posterior lateral bundle. And the anterior medial bundle is supposed to provide um, some restraint against anterior and posterior anterior tibial translation. And posterior lateral bundle is supposed to help with some of the rotary instability. And so when we have when we talk about, you know, ACL reconstructions, you have a single bundle technique where you just, you know, that, that one graph services both bundles and you have a double bundle technique where you try to recreate uh, the normal anatomy of the ACL and you try to make a posterior lateral and an anterior medial bundle. And so one of the hypotheses of uh, using a double bundle technique is that you can get failure after single bundle due to minimal internal rotation and valgus control, which again, yeah, I've talked a little bit about earlier, but just kind of repeating and, and, and bringing that back again. So again, the purpose of this study, it was to perform a meta-analysis and it was gonna compare single versus double bundle ACL reconstruction and more particularly the outcomes and how these patients do. 
So what they did is they primarily analyzed outcomes from level one randomized control trial, control trials, and then they also secondarily analyzed outcomes from um, level one to level three studies. And they searched a couple of different medical databases. They searched Medline database. They searched MBase database, and they also hand searched journals, which they which they wrote in their paper. I thought that was pretty cool. You don't see a lot of people hand searching journals these days. Uh, and the terms that they looked for were ACL, anterior cruciate ligament, as well as double bundle. And they included the study. They included the level of evidence, um, the number of patients, the patient demographics, the type of surgical intervention, the amount of time for follow-up, and the preoperative and postoperative uh, evaluation results. And they excluded any studies that were level four or level five. So in results, they ended up getting um, nine, they ended up looking at and, um, and analyzing nine studies, which included about four randomized control trials. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the, the charts of the tables, um, one on the left side and one on the right side. But these are just looking at some of the outcomes. This is looking at the KT1000 arthrotometer results. And basically um, what, what it showed is that is that the KT1000 side-to-side differences, so they measure it on the, on the operated limb and then the contralateral non-operated limb, and they found that the side-to-side differences uh, were closer, in, closer to normal in patients that were treated with a double-bundle ACL uh, reconstruction and those that were treated with a single-bundle um, ACL reconstruction. And they, and they found this to be statistically significant at a 95% um, confidence interval. Uh, with a p-value of less than 0.05. And then they also looked at the pivot um, shift results. And, and again, these two are, are talking about the level one evidence studies that, that they analyzed. And what they, what they noted from the uh, pivot and shift is that um, the ACL, um, the patients that had the double bundle ACL reconstructions had had a higher, you know, odds ratio or a uh, positive log odds ratio of having a normal or nearly normal pivot shift test um, versus the single bundle ACL reconstruction. But these results were not statistically significant, like the uh, results with the KT1000 arthrotometer was. So in conclusion, they noted that there's actually no clinically significant difference Although we did just mention that the KT1000 was statistically significant, but it wasn't clinically significant uh, between single bundle and double bundle. Uh, there are no statistical significant differences in regards uh, with the pivot and shift test postoperatively and single bundle versus double bundle as well. And you know some of the limitations for this is the reporting and the, and the performance bias. And one of the future things that they noted in this paper, the future considerations were kind of adhering to consort or, or use of standardized outcome measure because some of these different studies reported different um, different outcome measures. Some uh, studies uh, did the COOS questionnaire. Some studies had the Lysome um, questionnaires, but they were able to get, you know, the, all the studies had the KT1000 as well as the, uh, well, as well as the pivot and shift test. So agreeing on kind of the standardized outcomes on how to measure, you know, measure outcomes after ACL reconstructions would lead to better quality studies. So that was one of the kind of future, uh, future things that they noted from this study. And again, this is just showing that there's, you know, really no difference in regards to single bundle versus double bundle. Uh, when you look at the clinical outcomes, which is being, you know, one of the things that Hallie talked about, you know, a little bit earlier on in, in ACL reconstruction. And 
And so this is just, you know, another one of those papers that show there's not much difference. And again, like you have mentioned a little bit earlier with a double bundle, it is um, a little bit more technical than a single bundle reconstruction, and it does have some uh, increased operative time. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, a big paper level one um, or it reviewed the, the uh, level one studies. But um, yeah, kind of piggybacking off that you have this paper too, kind of comparing, uh, talking about the anterior or single bundle versus the uh, double bundle. And, you know, we were talking earlier, how, you know, we, we, you know, three, re three of us residents haven't seen it in our training so far. And if, you know, clinically there's no significant difference to doing it. Uh, I've never seen the KT-1000 device used. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but if that's, you know, the only <laughs> significant difference between the two, I don't, you know, I can understand why, you know, this, the posterior, uh, or excuse me, the double bundle technique is not really being utilized. Yeah. I haven't seen the actual, like, I haven't seen it in, in actual use, like with my own eyes, I've seen the like the machines, at least stuff from pictures. Cause when I was reading these articles, I was like, I have no idea what a KT-1000 arthrometer machine is so i had to you know google and, and see what it was but i've never actually seen one in real life being used i'm sure that gets used it has to but i've never seen it all right let's keep going so next paper is mine so this is a big study this is a 10-year comparison of acl reconstructions comparing the hamstring tendon and patellar tendon autograph so this is a big 10-year uh, perspective trial so a little bit of background information uh, regarding the two types of grafts, bone patellar tendon bone autograft has you, <clears throat> in the orthopedic world been considered the gold standard uh, that utilizes bone plugs to incorporate into your tibial and femoral tunnels. Uh, there have been studies shown that there's uh, in faster uh, uptake time compared to a purely tendinous graft. Um, but there is, you know, some cons with, um, this procedure you have an increased risk of anterior knee pain and patella fracture since you're taking you know large portion um, of the of your patella bone and there's also the hamstring autograph uh, typically um, we harvest the semi-t and the gracilis autograft and uh, it's called a quadruple the hamstring because you take these two graphs and double it so you have kind of four um, it, it does Biomechanically, it's shown that it has a higher load to failure compared to the gold standard of the bone patellar tendon bone. Um, there's less morbidity due to a smaller incision and less anterior knee pain. But there has been, you know, some discussion in the literature about, you know, hamstring weakness since you're harvesting, you know, two of your, your hamstring tendons. So the purpose of this study is a big prospective cohort study uh, to assess the to assess and compare the long term. Uh, outcomes comparing these two types of uh, graphs. <clears throat> so they took 180 ACL deficient knees, split them right down the middle. 90 of them underwent hamstring tendon reconstruction and 90 did the bone patellar tendon bone. Um, all these surgeries were actually performed <clears throat> by one surgeon, which is uh, pretty interesting. And um, from that point on, all the procedures were observed prospectively uh, for 10 years. They took uh, subjective, objective, and radiographic data uh, at multiple intervals at two, five, seven, and 10 years. They took multiple subjective measurements and that included the uh, international knee score, uh, symptoms related with a uh, certain activity, the lateral knee score activity level postoperatively, harvest site symptoms, and kneeling pain. And objectively, they looked at 
uh, the cl clinical evaluation of the uh, ligament reconstruction, the knee range of motion, single leg hop, and then uh, radiographic assessment. So lots of variables here that were uh, taken into account. So just talking about like the significantly, uh, statistically significant results, um, there was a higher incidence of radiographic evidence of uh, arthritic changes in the patellar tendon reconstructed knees. And as we kind of already, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, kneeling pain is all um, a, uh, a con of these uh, patellar tendon grafts. And the study showed that kneeling pain significantly increased uh, in these uh, specific patients. Although it wasn't statistically significant, there was a downward trend in the IKDC and the patellar tendon group compared to the hamstring group. And uh, they also um, had the study kind of came up with this ideal outcome, quote unquote, which included, included this uh, International Knee Documentation Committee uh, score or grade A uh, or B, and then a radiographic grade of A. And it actually showed that this hamstring tendon group, 69% actually, met this ideal outcome compared to the 47% of the bone patellar tendon bone uh, patients. So in conclusion, um, clinically, both these hamstring and patellar tendon autograft uh, reconstructions have excellent long-term outcomes, uh, subjectively and objectively. Um, the hamstring tendon autograft showed more favorable outcomes, albeit not necessarily statistically significant, but it did show more favorable outcomes compared to its uh, patellar tendon uh, counterpart. There were a few limitations to the study though, albeit there was only one surgeon that performed all 180 of these surgeries. It was noted in the paper that this uh, surgeon was more, um, was more of a bone patellar tendon bone veteran, uh, at this, when the study started compared to, uh, his, um, the amount of procedures he had done previously, including the hamstring tendon. So, you have to take that into account. Uh, he's done more patellar tendon um, surgeries as compared to the uh, hamstring tendon, but still, the study showed that the hamstring tendon did uh, more favorable. So, yeah, yeah, I actually had um, one of these done. I had uh, my patellar, I got uh, bone patellar bone done, and I had a little kneeling pain for a little while. No, I don't, but no, I mean, I think those are all you know important things, and, and definitely you need to even know some of that just to be able to counsel patients and. Let them know, like, you know, these are the two, these are, I mean, there are more than two different graph choices. These are a couple of different graph choices. These are pros and cons to each of them. They all tend to do very well, you know, especially to study other shows after 10 years, they both do well as far as outcomes are concerned. But, you know, these are some of the things that you can help counseling them on when you're in the office and you, know, you all are trying to figure out what the, um, what, you know, what's the kind of graph choice you want to go with. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wish they kind of in the study, since it was such a long-term study, I wish they kind of looked at um, like if uh, like time to return to activity, because, you know, there is a discussion about this, you know, uh, bone patellar tendon bone having quicker bony uptake compared to other grafts and it kind of can potentially lead to earlier return, but, you know, yeah, everyone's different, that's true. So I'm not sure. We're all not uh, Adrian Peterson, you know. He got he had an ACL. Yeah, back, yeah. Well, I, I, I think he's the uh, <laughs> he's the the outlier. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What was it like six months or something like that? I oh yeah, it was. He's a beast. I, I, I you know, he's he's not the normal human. Yeah. <laughs> all right, 
and so one, we got one more paper. Uh, and so this is just uh, a big randomized trial treatment for um, ACL ligament tears. Yeah. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Um, but so this is Frobel's study uh, taken in Lund University at the Clinical Orthopedic Institute in Sweden. Um, this is a randomized trial just about uh, treating acute ACL tears. So um, the reason they sort of started doing this trial was because they noted that pretty much all acutely torn ACLs were commonly treated surgically, but there wasn't really um, any high quality randomized control trials that actually compared ACL reconstruction with other treatment options, especially non-operative options. Um, so they wanted to investigate really, oh, you can keep going. They wanted to investigate structured rehab with early reconstructive surgical option versus the structured rehab with the optional delayed reconstructive surgery. And so they screened any patients 18 to 35 years of age that presented to the ED with uh, a knee trauma. And it had to be any rotational trauma within the last four weeks um, on a knee that was previously uninjured. Um, additionally, they had to find ACL insufficiency on their clinical exam. And these patients also had to have a score of five to nine on the Tegner activity scale prior to their injury. Tegner activity scale, just for reference, is basically denotes how active you are. A five is someone that, you know, compete or plays in non-professional sports recreationally. A nine is someone that competes uh, in non-professional sports. And so they also excluded anyone that had a total, total collateral ligament rupture or full thickness cartilaginous or meniscal lesion on MRI. They then randomized all their, uh, all their subjects to different surgical timeline groups. And they followed this rehab protocol uh, that they performed at their institution that was consistent with ACL literature for rehab. Um, in the uh, instance that meniscal surgery was needed, um, they performed it during the ACL reconstruction, but any patients that had meniscocapsular separations that were greater than 10 millimeters were excluded from the study just because their rehab regimen had to change from there on out. So continuing the methodology, um, early ACL reconstruction meant that these surgeries occurred within 10 weeks by one of four knee surgeons and uh, whether or not they chose the patellar tendon or hamstring tendon reconstruction as uh, Tucker previously just talked about was really determined by their preference. Um, the patients that were randomized into optional delayed reconstruction underwent the same procedures only if they desired it and continued to have these symptomatic knee instability um, and ACL insufficiency and a positive pivot shift test at that point. Um, I think it turned out to be an average of about 11.6 months um, for the delayed reconstruction group if they decided to have surgery. Uh, this group talked about primary outcomes being the average score of knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome scores from their baseline to two years, excluding the activities of daily living subscale, 
They also looked at other secondary outcomes, including uh, the activities of daily living, as well as the S SF36, which is a quality of life measurement, um, Tegner activity scale, and others. They also looked at more exploratory outcomes or clinical outcomes like knee, inst knee stability, pivot shift test, and the KT1000 that uh, Wendell Cole talked about previously as well. So their results, uh, they had about 62 subjects that underwent early ACL reconstruction and 59 that were randomized into the delayed optional reconstruction. Um, of those 59, less than half of them ended up going undergoing reconstruction. Um, and you can see from these graphs, they actually, the mean um, primary outcome, the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome scores were insignificantly different. They changed from 39.2, um, or sorry, they changed 39.2 uh, from their baseline to two years in the delayed group and 39.4 in the early group, uh, which was an absolute difference of 0.18 with, a, with significant data showing a confidence interval of 95% uh, p-value less than, or sorry, p-value of 0.96, um, meaning there was an insignificant difference between the two groups. You can also see on the um, post-talk as treated analysis, they separated out the delayed reconstruction versus just rehab alone groups and demonstrated that there was no difference or no significant difference between those groups either. So in conclusion, um, there's no better patient outcomes with the structured rehab and early ACL option versus um, optional delayed reconstruction. And however, like this paper was really limited by how specific their rehab protocol was. They didn't discuss it too thoroughly in the paper itself, but um, it was something that was specific to their institution that was consistent with um, rehab literature. And then on top of that, their patient demographic was focused on, you know, people from 18 to 35, um, anyone older and anyone younger was, couldn't really be adequately uh, derived information from this study, whether or not they should have the ACL reconstruction. And then on top of that, they focused on patients that were really active, um, anyone that was participating in sports, either at a non-professional level or just recreationally. Um, but their takeaway was that greater than half of ACL reconstructions could be avoided without adversely affecting outcomes. They reported that about greater than 200,000 ACL reconstructions happen annually in the US, which ended up costing about 3 billion. So theoretically, their thoughts on the matter are about saving $1.5 billion, uh, which is pretty significant. But if you consider which patient demographics this has to be in, it definitely goes less than one and a half billion that you're saving. Um, and for future studies, replicating the study at other institutions with different rehab protocols or um, different patient populations are necessary to really generalize the results of this study. Yeah, I think it's good to know, like, um, you know, not every patient needs an ACL reconstructed just because you tore it. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it. You can 
talk with them about their goals, you know, their activity levels, you know, because there, there are a lot of people walking around without an ACL, um, but, you know, they don't require cutting and, you know, doing anything of that sort. You know, you can go up and down stairs and walk around and, and get a, a functional limb without an, without an ACL, actually. Um, but I think it's always good to know, you know, kind of what the patient goals are. And I mean, I think this is a good paper to, to kind of talk about, you know, early versus delayed um, delayed surgery. But yeah, I think you did a good job summarizing this paper. Yeah, I, I think this is interesting because I, I recently ha had someone in our intern clinic who was, uh, you know, an older person who had a, a non-sport involved, you know, traumatic injury resorting in an ACL tear. And you know, as of right now, we're, you know, they're in therapy and, and we're, you know, treating this non-operatively. And, you know, like Wendell said, it kind of goes into like your patient demographic. Um, but, you know, it can be hard from a clinical standpoint to tell these patients like, yes, you tore your ACL, but based off of your, you know, age, lifestyle, level of activity, et cetera, et cetera, you don't necessarily need surgery. And I think there's this mindset that, oh, I have this traumatic, I have this ACL tear, it has to be operated on. And you're actually right. kind of like talking people out of surgery, which is, you know, not um, very common in our, in our line of work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally true. I remember I told, I think I tore mine and I had a delayed uh, reconstruction maybe two or three months later, but you know, in the meantime, like I was like still hiking, like I had traveled to another country and it was like hiking up mountains and stuff. Like, you know, so you can get around. Uh, you may not be as, you know, mindful, you know, um, you need to be a little more careful, but it, it can it can work. You know, I think it's again, just we're just here to help the patients out and get them to their desired activity level. So if their activity level desired is to go back playing D1 football and go pro and, you know, they want to be running back, you know, they're going to need their, their need a need to, to cut and, you know, do these different things versus if it's, uh, you know, Bill who, just happens to play like flag football on a random Saturday and all the other days of the week, he's not really that active. And he just happened to go out one day and tear it. You know, he may not, he may not necessarily need it. You know, that may not be one of his goals, but yeah, I just think it's just worth, you know, again, just talking to the patients and see, seeing what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Well, that, that concludes our, discussion on uh, our ACL reconstructions, our first for this sports citation classic. So hopefully you guys listening took, uh, learned something in regards to ACL reconstruction and realized that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of research done on this. So hope you guys enjoyed it. Oh yeah. We'll see what is, uh, what's in store for the next one. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your guys' time. Hopefully everyone that's uh, listening enjoyed as well.